Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. All right. Uh, if you follow the church calendar, if you were here last week, you know that we began the month of November with All Saints Sunday, the first Sunday in November. And so we had a wonderful uh, All Saints Sunday last week. I thank you for being here as we pay respect to those folks who have passed this last year. And then, of course, Advent are the four Sundays preparing us for Christmas. And so that usually begins the last Sunday of November or maybe the first Sunday of December. It just depends on how the calendar falls on a given year. And so we always have these two or three Sundays between All Saints and Advent where nothing is really designated, right? There's either two or three Sundays here in the middle and end of November where we're kind of waiting for Advent to begin. We've finished up everything from the previous season. And so today we're going to look at Psalm 98. Next week, Chase is going to preach on a psalm as well. We've got these two, two weeks. It's not really a sermon series, no overarching theme, but just going to give some attention to a couple of psalms uh, as they are, of course, a a central book of the Bible and uh, important for our spiritual formation. So today, Psalm 98, uh, that scripture is there in your bulletin or you can follow along uh, on the screen, but I invite you to give attention to the words of scripture this morning. Psalm 98 begins this way, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him victory. The Lord has made known his victory and he has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord. For He is coming to judge the earth. And He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. May God bless our reading of the Holy Scriptures and let us say together, Amen. Will you join with me in a spirit and attitude of prayer? Holy God, we gather today with thanksgiving in our hearts. We give thanks that you have seen us through another week. We give thanks that you have called us to this place and to this hour. Lord, we confess that as we gather this morning and as we sing and fellowship that there are all sorts of concerns filling our mind. Anxieties about the week past, worries about the week to come. And yet, God, we pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit would be near to us. That you would calm our souls that you would still our hearts, that we would know again your love and your grace, your care and your compassion. We ask God that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have failed ourselves and one another and you. We ask that you would heal us of our brokenness and selfishness and greed. We ask that you would bring us forth from this place to serve our neighbor in all that we do. God, as we've read Scripture, we pray that the words of Scripture would be written on our hearts, that our lives would reflect these truths and this goodness. We pray that you would speak through the words of Scripture this morning, that you would speak through my words, perhaps in spite of my words, that these, your people, would know your voice today, that they would be shaped according to your will. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Now, unless you live in a cave, as they might say, live under a rock, uh, surely you are aware that this week marked the end of another election season. There, of course, were signs all over town, commercials on our televisions and in our social media, on our phones and on our computers. The election season seems to dominate our psyche. I chose, of course, here a picture from the 70s, I believe, on purpose, right? I wanted to choose a a victorious election celebration, but I didn't want to choose one from this year, right? I didn't want to offend anyone, right? I didn't want to choose one party over the other. So hopefully this is a, uh, a, a picture that doesn't lean one direction or another. Of course, if you were like me, you were watching the results Tuesday night and you saw uh, city and and county and state and even national uh, officials that were elected. And and, and the pattern is, right, to go to a ballroom, to go to a civic center, uh, to have a big party, a big celebration. And the person who's been elected, maybe reelected, they come forth and they give a speech, right? And they they give thanks for all the hard work. They give thanks for everyone who believed in them. Uh, They they obviously mention their their opponent, right? And they thank them for a well-fought race. And then, of course, everyone celebrates. Celebrates our person, our, our elected official. This is the one who will fight for us and take care of us. Obviously, we do want to give thanks for our elected officials. Uh, we give thanks for our community members, some with ties to our church who serve here locally. Uh, we give thanks for those who serve at the state level, even the national level. I mean, it's an important thing to give your life, your time, your energy uh, to this, this way of governing. And so we remember today those who have been elected and even those who ran and weren't elected, we give thanks for their time and energy. At the same time, as a, as a spiritual leader, as someone who looks at these things through the lens of Scripture and our religious tradition, as I look at those election parties and celebration, one wonders, like, boy, what a, what a great amount of energy we pour into this process. And this wasn't even a presidential year, right? This was an off year. The energy and the money that goes toward these elections, I saw some statistics, you may have seen them, uh, the most expensive election season ever outside of the presidential campaigns. And so you kind of wonder, what's behind that? What do, we, what do we make of that as spiritual people when we celebrate our elected leaders to this degree? Today, as we begin to think about Psalm 98, I actually want to back up a little bit further and go back to the stories of, of Saul that are recorded in 1 Samuel. Now, you may remember these stories, you may not. I'm going to give you a little Old Testament crash course here because this is important for understanding what's going on in the psalm. When the people of Israel are, are becoming a nation and they're being formed, they are given judges. And right, We have a whole book that's called Judges. And that's an important title because the judge was someone who was set apart to interpret the law and to help the people live in a particularly religious way, right, according to the law that was given to them. And so judges were not kings. They were not officials like that. They were, they were religious institutions. Right? And so one of the great religious leaders, of course, is Samuel. And, and it tells us in the, in the book, um, in, the, in the stories of Samuel, it tells us that his sons, that his sons are not fit to be good judges. They're not faithful in the same way that he is. They don't have the same skills that he does. And so the people of Israel begin to clamor, begin to call for a king. This is a really important part of the Old Testament. The people of Israel begin to want a king. And so they talk to Samuel. Samuel, of course, is sort of the mediator between the people and God. And so Samuel goes to God and says, you know, Lord, the the people want a king, right? And and the Lord says, no, they don't need a king. A king is not good for them. And so this goes on for a few chapters until finally we get to 1 Samuel 8. And the Lord gives this long speech to Samuel. God speaks to Samuel, to the people. And he says, they really don't want a king. Because if they get a king, here's what's going to happen. 
The king is going to take their sons and turn them into warriors. The king is going to take their daughters and turn them into servants. The king is going to take their their food and, and use it for himself and for his officers. The king is going to take their land and their horses and their cattle. The Lord gives like a 10-verse speech about why having a king is a bad idea. But the people will not give up. And so the end of 1 Samuel 8 goes this way. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we want a king over us so that we will be like the other nations. So a king may judge us, go before us, fight our battles. Samuel heard the words of the people. He rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice and make them a king. That's a really big point in the Scriptures, that the people want a king, the Lord does not want them to have a king, and yet finally the Lord gives in. And why do the people want a king? Well, they want a king so they can be like the other nations. The other nations. And so this sets up a tension across the Old Testament that the people of Israel, they want to worship their king. They want to worship their king. And you know the stories of some of the kings, of Saul and of David and of the kings that followed them. Sometimes the kings are helpful and faithful, but oftentimes they're not. Of course, they're human people. They're flawed people. They, they do things that really mess up the kingdom of God, mess up the kingdom of Israel. And so constantly we have this tension back and forth. The people of Israel want to celebrate their king. But the Lord is trying to remind them, yeah, but your true king is the Lord. The true thing that you worship isn't the king, right? The true thing you worship is is God Almighty. So what does that have to do with the psalm? Well, when we read from Psalm 98, what we're reading is what is called an enthronement psalm. There are some others that are like this. And they're written as a way to help the people of Israel to remind the people of Israel that as they read and as they pray the words of Psalm 98, that their hope, that their salvation, that their future is not in a human king, but is instead in the Lord. Their hope and their salvation is in the Lord God Almighty. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, we have this kind of back and forth. Do we celebrate the king or do we celebrate God? Do we celebrate the king or do we celebrate God? Well, Psalm 98 is an attempt to invite the people to remember and celebrate the Lord their God. So hear these words. Oh, sing to the Lord a song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm have gotten victory. He has made known his victory to all the nations, his steadfast love and faithfulness toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. And so Psalm 98 is an attempt to pray, to remember, to worship that the reason we are the people of God, the reason we are the people of Israel is because it is God who has gotten us this victory. What does this victory mean? Well, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean stories like the Exodus, when the people come out of of slavery in Egypt and they're given this new promised land. Who did that? God did that. Or jump ahead a few hundred years, it could be the story like coming out of exile, coming from Babylon, coming back to their promised land. Who did that? God did that. And so Psalm 98 is an attempt to, to reorient the people in their worship. You don't worship the king. You don't give thanks for the king. You don't worship humans, right? It is God who's given you victory. It is God who rescues you and marks your life. An enthronement psalm. Now the psalm continues. If we can recognize that our hope is not in kings and people and elected leaders, right? If we can recognize that our hope is really in the Lord, then that creates in us a joyous response, Not the sort of response that happened on Tuesday night among those victorious election parties, right? That's a sort of temporary response. That's a sort of hope placed in humanity or a political system. What the psalm describes is a joy that's rooted much deeper. 
Not in kings and coaches and politicians, but a joy that's rooted in the Lord. And so when you recognize that the Lord is the one who's giving you hope and salvation, the Lord is the one who shapes your future, then verse 4 says, then you ought to do what? You ought to make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. You ought to break forth into song and sing praises. You ought to use a lyre or use uh, horns or trumpets. Whatever it is, you should make a joyful noise to the Lord, your King. Your King. Now, of course, we've gathered for worship this Sunday. We Methodists tend to be a little bit bashful in our worship. Is that true, Brian? Sometimes we sort of sing to ourselves, yeah, right? We sort of let the band do the worshiping for us, right? But look at the energy described here in Psalm 98. If the Lord is your Savior, if the Lord is your hope, if the Lord has rescued you, then you ought to make a joyful noise. You ought to sing. You ought to use a, a lyre or a harp or a trumpet or a drum. This, this energy ought to pour forth from you. If you know that the Lord is your rightful king and the rightful God of your life, the one who has rescued you, a joyful noise. I've referenced uh, this guy before a little bit, David Taylor. He's written a wonderful book on the Psalms. We've used it here for some different things. He has uh, different chapters where he talks about different themes. And one theme that he takes out of the Psalms is this theme of joy. That there are many Psalms, including Psalm 98, that call forth the people of Israel and, and us today that call forth uh, praises of joy, celebrations of joy. And he picks out a couple of patterns in those psalms. Uh, Here are just a few. One, he says, of course, is that our joy, the source of our joy, is God alone. The source of our joy is God alone. Now, we've talked about how that played out in the Old Testament, right? That these Old Testament people were often looking for joy in other places like kings or political leaders. But we can see how easily that translates to our lives as well that we go to other sources, we go to other parties, other entities, other institutions, looking for joy and happiness. But the Psalms teach us that true joy, that real joy, is of course found in God alone. Number two, and the reason that we have joy in God is often because we remember and we rehearse how God has rescued us. Now, again, in the Old Testament, we have these real specific ways, the exodus or returning from the exile, but that could be true in your life as well. When you remember the years of your life, you remember the difficulties of your life. When you give a testimony, when you think about the way in which God has saved you, and that brings joy. Number three, joy often exists alongside sorrow. I think that's an important thing to acknowledge, right? That having this sort of biblical joy in our lives doesn't mean that our lives are not also sometimes difficult and painful. Certainly we know that to be true that we experience losses, that we experience seasons of grief and hardship. And yet, this joy, this biblical joy, can still coexist alongside that pain. And then number four, Taylor says, joy is our true end, our true end. That the thing that we are living toward in this life and the thing that we will move into in the next life is simply to enjoy God's presence, to enjoy the fact that we are beloved and known by God. There's this famous line from the Westminster Catechism. That's the Presbyterian, the Calvinist Catechism. Uh, It begins by by this line. It says, man's chief end, of course, man, humanity, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I like that idea, right? Our chief end, the thing that we're working toward, the, the whole point of our being is to know and celebrate the joy of the Lord. And so Psalm 98 is just one of those scriptural bases for doing so.
The next thing that Taylor says is the next part of the psalm, that the joy of the Lord not only marks our own lives, but the joy of the Lord enfolds all of creation. Verses 7, 8, and 9. I love these verses. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord. For He is coming to judge the earth. And He will judge the earth with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Perhaps the last few verses of this psalm speak to us as much as any of the others. Because we are predominantly, most of us, we are indoors people. We work indoors, we worship indoors, we live in our homes. When it turns cold, as it did this weekend, we spend even more time indoors. Not only are we indoors people, but we are people who largely function like this, right? Walking around, looking at our devices, right? Psalm 98, as with other psalms, is an invitation to to quit looking at our devices, to lift up our heads, and to see the wonder and grandeur and majesty of all of creation. The seas and the rivers and the creeks, the the hills and the, the animals and the fish and the cows and the birds and the moon and the stars and the sun and the clouds. And you'll notice that kind of as we do that, as we move our, our chins up a little bit and we take account of all of creation, that that creates in us a, a little bit of humility, right? Look how big and glorious and grand this world is. Like, golly, I'm only a small part of it, a very small part and, and even a very temporal part. Like, this world is old and this world's going to continue for a long time. Like, I'm just sort of a blip on the radar of creation. And yet all of creation is joining in this eternal chorus, this praise of God. The seas and the hills and the mountains and the animals, all are worshiping God at all times. And so something in the psalm is inviting us to kind of tune our hearts, not to, the, not to our own desires and wishes and hopes, not to our own aspirations, but, but to tune our hearts to the, to the sense of worship that's happening all around us. Now that last verse may be the part that's most odd about Psalm 98. So far, it's been good news. The Lord is king, therefore you should sing a new song. You should make a joyful noise. All of creation worships you. And then verse 9 says, and he is coming to judge the world. Right? That's kind of an odd, an odd step. We don't usually think about joy and celebration along with judgment. But in this case, notice what the psalm is doing. Like, like if the Lord is really your king, like if you, if you truly trust that the, the Lord is your, your God, your salvation, your hope, if, if, if your worship is really pure and honest, if you're putting all of your hope in this Lord, then you also welcome his judgment. If God is good and loving and gracious and righteous, then there's nothing to fear when we think about his judgment. In fact, we would welcome his judgment. We would welcome him judging us with righteousness and judging the peoples and the nations as well. And so Psalm 98 says sort of the, the rightful end of worship is not only to give God glory and praise, but is to also welcome God's judgment, for God to see us as we truly are and to be shaped according to his will. Now, if you looked at any study material on Psalm 98 at all, if you had a study Bible or a resource for the Psalms, almost all of them would mention that Isaac Watts, a 1700s hymn writer, that Isaac Watts used Psalm 98 to write the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. 
Now, I offer that to you just as a sort of parallel in terms of thinking about these psalms. Psalm 98 for us is just, just words on a page. It's just Scripture, right? We don't necessarily know how to sing it or know how to, to read it in the way that it would have been in its original language. But, but people like Watts, hymns like Joy to the World, have taken the themes of Psalm 98 and have kind of put them in a contemporary way, right? So here in these lyrics, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let heaven praise the room, heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior rings, let all their songs employ, fields and floods, rocks, hills, repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace, he makes his nations prove the glory of his righteousness, the wonders of his love. Now, of course, Watts is a gifted writer and a really talented interpreter of Scripture, because he's taken the themes of Psalm 98 and he's read into them Christ's birth and really Christ's ministry. That he comes as Lord and King to judge all the earth. And so here in a few weeks when we sing Joy to the World, maybe on Christmas Eve or maybe on Christmas Day or in those Sundays following it, Joy to the World, right? I mean, you can really hear that enthusiasm behind Psalm 98. Sing with joy in your hearts. Make a... Make a new song in your hearts. The Lord is your king. The Lord is your hope and the Lord is your salvation. Not only are you singing, but all the earth is singing. Christ has come as your hope and your salvation and will judge the nations. Joy to the world. That's the spirit behind Psalm 98. It's an invitation to have a joyous heart and to sing with great celebration. When I think about uh, joy as sort of an experience, I think it's helpful to, to parse out uh, joy and, ha- and happiness. Because I don't think joy and happiness are quite the same. Happiness uh, tends to be more fleeting, right? Uh, we're happy when something funny happens. We have a good day at work. Things go smoothly. That makes us happy. Uh, someone tells a joke. Our team wins. Our, our candidate wins. Those things make us happy, but that's sort of temporal, Right? It sort of comes and goes. Some days we're happy, some days we're sad. It's hard to predict. I think what, what joy is, what biblical joy is, the joy of the Lord, is something that's a little more, more, more profound, a little deeper, and a little bit more consistent. And I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm 98, I, I think to myself, like, boy, I would like to have that sort of joy. Like, I would, I would like to read and sing and celebrate Psalm 98 with great uh, intensity and enthusiasm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, for He is our hope and our salvation. And so I think Psalm 98 is sort of given to us. It was certainly given to the people of Israel, but it's also given to us as well as something of a formula, Right? If you want to know joy, if you want to have joy, if you want your life marked by joy, then this psalm kind of gives you three steps. The first thing to do to practice joy is to remember that the Lord is your king. The Lord is your king. Not your elected leaders, not your bosses, not your parents, not your favorite coach. The Lord is your king. Meaning that all these other these other forces and, and, and voices of leadership in our lives, they, they may be important for a season. We may follow them in a certain way, but we don't place our hope in them. We don't place our future. We don't place our, our salvation in those temporary leaders. The Lord is your king. And if you, could, if you could sort of live into that, then that actually gives you joy, right? You don't have as much invested in those temporary voices. Second thing, if the Lord is your king, then you ought to make a joyful noise to the Lord. 
Now, I know some of you, singing comes more natural. We have people that are gifted and talented in those ways. Some of you know how to play an instrument. But, but notice verses 4 through 7, uh, it's not only for people who are talented, right? Uh, it's for everyone. And so maybe you could start here on Sunday morning, but maybe even when you go home, maybe during the week, maybe when you're driving your car, you ought to sing with gusto, you know? Let it rip. Really sing, you know? And if you can't sing, it says, then you ought to find a a trumpet or a drum or something, you've got to make some noise. Get that joy out of you. And then, of course, the last step is to celebrate alongside creation. And this may be the most challenging for us as people who live indoors, who spend our time on electronic devices and phones and computers. Part of knowing joy is recognizing just how big this created order is, just how small we are. And there's something in that that sort of releases in us, Right? wow, I'm, I'm not as important as I thought. Look at these hills and these floods and these rivers and these, look at all these animals. Like I'm just one small part of creation. So I can have joy in my heart. My, my life is not so, so important that everything is, is relying on me. So we join in creation's song. I invite you maybe this week, maybe in the next few weeks, to consider Psalm 98 as a little bit of a, a formula, a little bit of a, a recipe for learning to create and to live into the joy of the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the joy of the Lord. We have known that joy in seasons of our lives. We pray today as we read Psalm 98 that our lives will be marked by that joy again and even more deeply. God, may we be reminded that you are our King and our Lord, that our salvation and our hope is in you alone. God, may we feel welcomed and may we feel uh, courageous enough to make a joyful noise, to sing with, with hope and enthusiasm in our hearts. And may we be reminded, God, that we are just, just one element among this large created order. And it is a great joy to join with the hills and the trees and the seas in celebration of you. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.